So y'all have heard a story about a little girl. This little girl treated her, she's not a little girl now, but um, teenager now, but little girl who really treated her mama not well. She didn't treat her mama very well at all. She was ashamed of her mama. And the reason she was ashamed of her mama is because her mama had this pretty horrific, ugly, nasty scar on her face. And so when this little girl, when she was a little girl, it just freaked her out, this really pretty nasty scar on her face. And the little girl would never ask her friends to come over to their house to play. She'd never ask her friends to come over to their house to, uh, to have a slumber party or do whatever little girls do. She never asked her friends to come over. She never asked her mama <clears throat> to, to go to school when they had, you know, mama work day or any of that stuff where mamas would go to school. She never asked her mama to be a room mama. How many of y'all have been a room mother? If Susan was here, that's not that many. Tell the truth. All right. David, don't raise your hand. You could not possibly have been a room mama. But this, this little girl, she never asked her mama to come and be, a, and be a room mama at school. And, you know, finally, her mother asked her, you know, she said, honey, why don't you ever bring your friends over? Why don't you ever ask anybody to come home from school with you and play? Why don't you, you ever ask anybody to come over on a Saturday and spend the night and go to church with us the next day? And why don't you, you never asked me to go to school with you. Why is that? You know, and by now I think the girl's 12 or 13 years old or something. And she says, well, and she's kind of teary-eyed and she's like, well, mom, it's the scar. It's the scar on your face. It's just so bad and it, like, it just embarrasses me. Well, her mama said, darling, sit down for a minute. She said, I've never told you this, but I want to tell you about the scar on my face and how it came to be. She, and they lived on a farm. She said, one day I went outside when you were a baby, darling. I went outside to draw some water. Y'all know, how many of y'all know what drawing some water means? All right, not many. Drawing some water out of the well. They were on well water. And she went out. She walked across the field. <clears throat> she drew some water. She turned around and she said, honey, the house was on fire. And I knew that you were in the crib. And she, so she runs back inside. She dropped the bucket of water. She's running to go save her baby. And, <clears throat> and she said, uh, I grabbed you, you know, my baby girl, my little baby girl, I grabbed you out of the crib and, and the fire was kind of all, all around us and, and I got you and as we were running out of the house, a beam fell off the ceiling and it hit me kind of in the head and it was, it sat on my face for just a second kind of seething before I could knock it off. Well, I knocked it off and I got me and you out uh, to safety. And she said, I just want you to know, darling, the, the next time that you don't want your friends to come over the next time that you're embarrassed by me, that the only reason I had this scar on my face is I was saving your life. So y'all, Jesus got some scars. He's got some scars. He's got some scars on his wrist. He's got you know, some scars on his feet, on his ankles. He's got a big old scar on his side where a spear went in there. I want to tell you, how did he get those scars? Well, you and I, when we were born, we boarded a direct flight straight to hell. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the ticket that we had. And it was a direct, nonstop sort of flight. We were on our way to be completely separated for he, for, forever from a holy God. But Jesus is looking down. This is metaphorical a little bit. Jesus is looking down. And he, and, he, and, he, and he sees that, <clears throat> and it bothers him 
that he wants to do something about the consequences of sin. Y'all know there's consequences of sin. He doesn't want us to suffer the consequences of sin. He looks to the Father and says, no, no, I got it. Like, I got it. I'll go and I'll take care of it. And so he does. He comes down. God himself comes down, born in the flesh, and he stretches out his arms on a cross, and they run some nails through it, and they run some nails through his feet, and they poke him in the side with a spear to make sure he's dead. He's really dead on that cross. And so, you know, the next time that you don't want to tell anybody about him, remember how those scars got there. The next time that you are embarrassed about your faith, about your belief, kind of remember how those scars got there. The next time that you don't want to be a disciple, the next time that you don't want to get up in the morning and go to a Bible study at 6.30 a.m. on a Wednesday morning, the next time that you don't feel like, I don't feel like getting up and going to church, the next time that you don't, I don't feel like going out in the streets and serving him, the next time that I don't, like, I don't feel like serving in tots. I don't feel like serving in kids. The next time you don't want to be his hands and feet, because you know his hands and feet got scars on them, y'all. The next time you don't want to do that, just remember how those scars got there. Just, just remember that. And when you do remember that, commit to him that you will follow him for the rest of your days. Y'all, we started last week a journey through the book of Acts. And we did a, kind of a 20, 25-minute flyover, big-picture view of, of Acts, which I told you was the second book that Luke, the doctor, that Luke wrote, the first book being the Gospel of Luke, the second book being the, the Acts. And it was Luke, if you remember, the Gospel of Luke kind of tells us the everything that Jesus began to do and teach. The Gospel of Luke tells us and shows us, and he wrote about the finished work of Christ, just like Matthew, Mark, and John did, the finished work of Christ. And then Acts, his second volume, his second book, is what is the what, what Jesus continued to do and to teach through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And and I gave you a what I think is a uh, is a really good name, maybe a better name for the book. Y'all do know because y'all are thinking this dude's preaching heresy. He's rewriting the Bible. No, the names of the books are not inspired. The 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 Scripture is inspired. Okay, y'all got that? So I'm going to give you a, yeah? No? Yeah, thank you. So I believe this is a, is a, a super description of, of the book of Acts. It's a great name for Acts, that it's the Acts, Luke's second book, the Acts of the Lord Jesus through his people, the Acts of the Lord Jesus through his people, kind of uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, for the accomplishment of God's purposes. I think that's a great name. Now, last week we were in verses, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Today we're going to start in, in verse 6, and we'll run probably through verse 11. So let me read this to you. And one, another thing we did last week is I introduced you to a different translation that we're going to use as we walk through Acts, the complete Jewish Bible. And so I told you there's a few, uh, there's going to be throughout it some Hebrew words, and when they come up, I'll, kinda, I'll tell you what, what those words mean. So verse 6, when they were together, remember they is his folks, his guys and his ladies. When they were together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore self-rule to Israel? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he answered, 
You don't need to know the dates or times. The Father has kept these under his own authority. But you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, comes upon you. And you will be witnesses both, excuse me, you will be my witnesses both in Yerushalayim and in all Yehuda and Shomron indeed to the ends of the earth. And that is in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria. And he says, and indeed on to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, after saying this, he was taken up before their eyes. And a cloud hit him from their sight. As they were staring into the sky after him, suddenly they saw two men dressed in white standing next to them. And the men said, you Galileans, why are you standing staring into space? This Yahshua, this Jesus, who has been taken away from you into heaven, will come back to you in just the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Y'all, so first and foremost, this was Jesus' last day on earth, about six weeks from the resurrection, his last day on earth. And so what he did and what he said is a super powerful message for me and you. And I think and I believe in these six verses that there's four scenes play out. Four scenes. Scene one is verses six and seven. The Bible says, I'm gonna read it to you again. When they were together, when they were together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom, going to restore self-rule to Israel? And he answered, ain't none of your business. That's what he said. He didn't say it quite like that, but he says, it's none of your business. He said, you don't need to know the dates or the times. That's the father's business. The father has kept these under his own authority. And so they're like, when in the world is the Lord going to set up his kingdom? When, when, when? Have you ever wondered that? Have you, I guarantee you, if you're a believer, you've said, when are you going to come back? Like the world is so jacked up. Like when are you coming back? His guys had been doing that for three years. And now he's been nailed to a cross, run out of the grave alive. It's six weeks later. They're still asking the question, when are you going to set up your kingdom? This is questions in the front of their minds. Been that way for, for a long time. And y'all, we know the, the they were together that's in verse six at this time was at a place called the Mount of Olives, Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem, which ironically enough is the same place that they were in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 24, some not all that long before this, when they asked him this question. Matthew chapter 24, they asked this question of Christ in verse three, tell us. They said, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that you are coming and that the Olam Chazeh, that's this world, what will be the sign that you are coming and that the, that the world is ending? They ask him the same question and Jesus says a lot in response in Matthew, but in verse 36 he says this, but when that day and hour will come, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the son, only the father. Now, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that's easy to, easy to understand. Like, how can the... How can Jesus not know? Like, how can the Father know? You know, we worship one God, right? We don't, we're not polytheists. We worship one God. Three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How can the Father know and the Son not know? You know what my answer is? I don't know. Like, but it's clear what the Bible says. Those are Jesus' words, right? They're, they're in red in most of your Bibles. But when that day and hour will come, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. 
So that's the father's business. It's not even the son's business. It's surely not any of our business. And then in verse 43, again, Matthew 24 and verse 43, he says, but you do know this. Had the owner of the house known when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you too must always what? Be ready. It's the battle cry of the second Calvary. Be ready. Be ready. For the Son of Man will come when you are not expecting him. So this scene, this first scene in verses 6 and 7 are about the promised kingdom. It's about the promised kingdom. Picture this scene now. Now this scene in, in Acts chapter 1, this is not him and his 10 or 11 guys. It's, it's, that's not what it is. This is 500 plus Jesus freaks on or halfway up or somewhere around the Mount of Olives. And they're surrounding Jesus. He's been resurrected now for about six weeks, right? And one of them, I don't know who, probably Peter, I don't know, says, is it go time? Is it go time? He unhooks his holster buckle, right? They're pulling sword. Like, is it go time? That's what they, and they've been doing that for like three years, three and a half years they've been doing that. Well, why? Why? They have been eagerly, eagerly anticipating a glorious earthly kingdom free from Roman oppression for a long, long time. Israel, for a long time. That's what they envisioned. That's what their image of the kingdom was. You're going to restore? Dude, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom? So they're ready to go. They were longing for days gone by in a restoration of the fortunes and of the military might that Israel enjoyed under King David, which was a thousand years earlier. That's what they were looking at. Now, I want you a couple of things to remember. Yes, absolutely unconditionally, he's going to set up a kingdom on earth. There ain't no doubt about it. He is. So there is a future aspect to the kingdom. But at the end of the day, the kingdom about which Jesus spoke of is first and foremost a spiritual kingdom that resides in the hearts and in the lives of believers. Behind that, behind that, yes, is an earthly kingdom that he promises to institute when he comes back. You know he's coming back, right? Right? And he's not a liar. God is outside of God's character. So if he promises an earthly kingdom, he promises to come back, he's coming back, right? But this that he's talking about in this moment is the kingdom that is living inside. If you're, if you're a Christ follower today, the kingdom is living inside of you in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And so Jesus replied to this question that they asked a hundred times they asked the question. He said the Father sets all the timelines for the events the worldwide timelines, national timelines, timelines in, in, in personal timelines in our lives. And so if you're in here today, and I bet you there's people that were in here in the first service, there's people in here today, right now, there's people watching online, whether they're watching today or three days from now, and God's not making a change immediately in your life that you may have been begging for. You may have been begging for Lord, take this away from me, whatever it is. Or Lord, 
I've been asking for so long for this, Lord, why is it not happening? So if, that, if that's you, and it's probably been all of us at some point, but if you're looking for a change that he is not making immediately, don't flip out. Like, don't freak out. Don't go bananas. Just trust him. Trust him. When the Bible says believe, it's the same word as trust. When the Bible says faith, it's the same word as trust. So when we believe, we believe and we have faith and we have trust. We believe in him. We have faith in him. We trust him. So trust him. Trust his timing. Think about his character. Think about his character. He is good. All good. He's wise and he's loving and he's all powerful and he's all knowing. Even when things seem insanely crazy and insanely chaotic, even in the midst of the chaos, even in the midst of the, of the pain, e even in the midst of the suffering, God's character doesn't change and his timing is perfect. His timing is pinpoint precisely perfect. His provision for me and you, it's pinpoint precisely perfect. It's perfect. It's this weird thing. It took me a long time to, to just get my arms around the idea that he knows better what, and what I need and when I need it than I myself do. Part of the amen is right. Think about it. What has to happen for someone to, to get to that place mentally? Pride's got to at least begin to get removed because I am constantly wanting to, to know better. And maybe I lived a whole bunch of personally of my life believing absolutely that I know better. But there comes a day when you realize that there's just a tiny few little things that you are in control of. A, very, a tiny few. And the things that, that you think you need, you really won't. Need and want two different things. The Lord knows exactly what you need and he knows exactly when, when you need it. And so his timing and his provision are perfect. Trust him. Trust him even when it doesn't make sense because he is not a liar. So this question that they've been asking him for three years, culminating in this six weeks after the resurrection, this question of when, he tells them that's outside of your jurisdiction, all of you. That's outside of your jurisdiction. What should concern and what should consume them and what, or what should have concerned them and consumed them and what should concern you and me and consume me and you is the loaded statement that's in the very next verse, in verse eight. And notice the word but that begins that, that conjunction. Anybody remember conjunction, junction, what's your function? Most of y'all are probably too young to remember that. Conjunction, but. He, you know, what he's saying is, y'all all, like, you're all worried about this wind and all this peripheral stuff. And he says, no, no, that's the Father's business. It's not your business. But, but you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses both in Yerushalayim 
and Yehuda and Shomron and indeed to the ends of the earth. So scene two, Jesus assigns me and you our marching orders. He assigns our marching orders. Acts 1.8, the last recorded words of Christ on the planet. Acts chapter one, verse eight. So those words are final words. Those words are, are author, authoritative words. Those words are so critically important for 1,500 years. Traditionally, Acts 1.8 has been called the pivotal point, the pivotal verse in all of the New Testament, that all of the New Testament hinges on Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Our marching orders, our task, our, our assignment is the Great Commission. Go, go. Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Go and do that. So I think in verse 8, I think there's three things that I want us to take notice of today in verse 8. The how, the what, and the where. First of all is the how. The how. And I think about this like personally all the time. Like how in the world can a messed up person like me possibly do anything to, to help fulfill the Great Commission? Like, how can you, Lord, use, I don't know any other way to say it, a jacked up person like me? How can that be? Well, in my own strength, in my own power, in whatever amount of authority, all of myself, I ain't bringing much to the table, very little to the table. But if I'm in Christ, if I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit, if God is living inside of me, and y'all, I'm not saying that's the easiest concept to understand. I'm not. But I had a young man right before this service that said to me, the day that he got saved, he said to me, on the way home, I realized that I was really saved and how unbelievable it felt. Like how unbelievable. And, I, and I, I think I said to him, like, I wake up every day of my life. I can't believe I'm saved. And so, and I don't have crazy self-esteem problems, but in my own, in Ed's own strength, Ed brings nothing to the table. But if I'm in Christ, if I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit, I get my equipping power from the Holy Spirit. He enables me to do something to affect in some small way, the kingdom. And I think that the disciples and maybe me and you on some occasions, we look for our power and our authority from other stuff, from position or recognition or fame or fortune or wealth or whatever it is. And Jesus says, no, man, no, no. Your power is going to be spiritual. Your power is going to be supernatural. And you know, at the core at the very core of somebody that doesn't believe, and I'm not even, I'm talking about at the very core for somebody who would profess to be an atheist. At the core is a denial that there is anything supernatural. One of my closest friends, that is at the core of his thought process is a denial of anything supernatural. And Jesus says here, it's not gonna be of anything of the world. It's gonna be a supernatural thing. So your power and your, and your authority is going to come via God himself through his presence in your life through the Holy Spirit. 
And the point is this, me and you are given a task, a holy task, a holy assignment, a sacred assignment, a mission, a sacred mission to carry out while we are here on the earth. But we don't have on our own, we don't have the power. We don't have the strength to do that on our own. God himself through his Holy Spirit is needed for that. And don't you know that if, if God is giving us something to do, he's going to equip us to be able to do the something that he ain't stupid, y'all. If he's going to tell me this is my task, he's not going to tell me to do something that I can't do without him. He's going to equip me for the task. If you're, we were talking, uh, Megan on the, on the uh, announcements was talking about growth groups. If you feel tugged or led or whatever to lead a growth group, let us know. Sometimes for people, that's a scary thing. I ain't never led nothing in my life. But if God's tugging you to do that, he's going to equip you to do that. If he is in that, he's going to equip you to do that. And you may feel unequipped. Well, there's a sign of humility. I live every day of my life feeling inadequate. But God comes alongside and says, Ed, you are inadequate in and of yourself. But he says the same thing that Jesus said to the Father. But I got it. I got it. Lean on me and I will equip you for whatever the task is that I, the Lord, have determined for you. Does that make sense? So the Holy Spirit equips us for the, for the mission. Number one. Number two is this, the what. That's the how. How about the what? Well, what's the mission? Well, I'm going to tell you this. Me and you ain't never had a more important mission ever. There's nothing, there's no more important mission in your life than this mission that he has for us. There's no higher or best use of your time, of your resources, of your, uh, your relationships. There's no better use, no higher or better use of everything that you are than the mission to tell people about the Lord, to share the gospel. But here's what that doesn't mean. Whopping somebody upside the head with a Bible and saying, you're going to hell. That's not an effective way, y'all. I had it done to me like for years when I was a kid. It doesn't work. Y'all, it doesn't work. It's not effective. It sure is not compassionate. I mean, and it's not loving. You got to speak the truth, though. You got to speak the whole truth, right? You don't have to water it down, but you have a real conversation in a relationship with somebody. That whole thing gets done to strangers, and they're like, well, if that's what being a Christian is, count me out. That's not, that's not the what of the mission. Like, it's not. But sharing the gospel is the mission. Sharing the gospel. The whole gospel. And so he's telling them in this moment, now's not the time to be worried about all this peripheral stuff. It's time to get busy. Busy witnessing to people who don't have a relationship with me. Y'all, people are dying. I, I know I say this all the time. People are dying lost in the streets every day. Millions of people die every day lost, every day. And we're all living somewhere for eternity. And they're dying lost in the streets every day. Y'all, it's time to get busy witnessing to them the truths of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the whole truth. 
Y'all being a witness for, for Jesus Christ, sharing the mind-blowing salvation that's found in him. And it is mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. That is the great task of every single believer. Don't say, well, that's the, that's the preacher's job. No. Y'all got relationships I don't have. Many, many. Y'all can influence way more people than I can. Statistically, every human on the planet knows 286 people. Now, why I know that statistic is, I don't know why I know that. It just came out. I didn't say that in the first service. But the truth is, that's the number, 286 people. You can influence way more. You've got friends that you can share and talk with. I'm not going to get through them. Who, they don't know me from Adam. But they know you. And so it's inside those relationships to share this crazy salvation story that's in Scripture. And it's easy to understand. It's clearly seen. No greater truth exists in all the universe than this. Man can now be delivered from sin, death, and hell. He can. Think about that. What kind of doctor would discover the cure for lung cancer and not tell anybody about it? What kind of firefighter would be standing in somebody's yard holding the fire hose and the valve and the house is on fire and he says, nah, and he walks away? Like, who does that? No, no, that's not what happens. The perfect cure for sin has been secured. It was secured on a cross 2,000 years ago. The perfect cure for death is now known. The perfect cure for hell exists now. And me and you got the key to the kingdom in our pocket. We got the cure in our pocket. Don't keep it in your pocket. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. There is absolutely no reason in the world whatsoever, no reason for any of your friends, any of my friends, any of my family, any of your family to suffer ever, not another day, under the weight and the bondage of selfishness or or bitterness or hatred or emptiness or loneliness or fear or anxiety or depression or hunger or insecurity or guilt or shame. There's no reason for that to exist anymore because as a believer, I know the truth. And as a believer, y'all, you know the truth. If you are a believer, you know the truth. You got the truth in your pocket. Lord, have mercy on all of us that know the truth and stay silent. Lord, have mercy on us when we know the truth and don't say anything. Now, you got to speak the truth with compassion. You can't speak the truth. I talked to you about beating somebody over the head with the scripture. Speak truth, but be compassionate. I'll give you another couple of points about the, about the what. Verse 8, it says, but you will receive. You will receive power when the... Holy Spirit comes upon you, upon you. You will receive it when he, come, when he comes upon you. You will be my witnesses. The word you, it's the believer. It's the believer. It's you that receives the power. It's you that receives the Holy Spirit. It's you that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon. It's the believer, the individual believer that is going to be a witness. It's the believer who knows the cure. You got the keys for the Shelby in your pocket. Go tearing out the driveway, screaming for Jesus down the road, y'all. That word witness, the sense of that word witness here in, in Acts chapter 1 is, and it's, a, it's weird, it's a little less of a command. Now, the Great Commission in Matthew is a command. It is, a, it is 
It is not a suggestion. It is a command. Now, this word witness in Acts chapter 1, it's a little more, the nuance is a little more of a, of a, of a natural result of being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. It's a little more of a natural result of what happens when you are infused and immersed in the Holy Spirit. And so it, it's important because it makes the, the power that you receive and, and the witnessing trademarks or hallmarks of a Christian, of a Christian walk. It just becomes, it just kind of becomes part of who you are. It just kind of becomes part of your daily life. It kind of can infiltrate every kind of conversation, y'all. Friend of mine, Stephen Kendrick, I've never seen a human in my life that you could be talking, I don't know, you could be talking about this carpet and he's got the gospel in it in 10 seconds. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. I've never seen, like, I want to be like that when I grow up. It doesn't, like, whatever the conversation is, it's just because it's part, it's part of who he is. And that's what, that's what is happening here in Acts 1. That immersion in the Holy Spirit and the power that comes from him and the witnessing ability that comes from him when you're equipped, it just becomes part of who you are. It just becomes part of your, your daily life. Now, the problem is sometimes we can try to reverse the order and, and witness in our own power and in our own authority, and it doesn't work. Witnessing is not sharing, is not showing or, or telling what we can do for God. That, that's, not, that's not it. It's showing and it's telling other people what he's already done for us. It's your story. Your story. Like, Wendy's story is going to mean more for Wendy's people and friends than Ed's story is going to mean for Wendy's people and friends. Does that make sense? It's your story. And what's going to happen is the deceiver is going to try to get you off track and be talking about something else. But it's your, your Jesus story, y'all, is it's your story if you are a believer. And you've got a story. You've got a story of a heart transplant. And it may be a dramatic thing or it may not be the most dramatic thing. But I'm going to say there's a little drama in there if you had a heart transplant. But it's yours. And nobody can take the truthfulness of your story away from you. They can, you can argue theology with people all day long. Don't do that. But you can. You can, you can argue about dunking or sprinkling. You can argue about losing your salvation or eternal security. You can argue about the color of the carpet in the church. You can argue that we should have folded. You can argue about all that stuff and people can disagree, but they can't disagree with your story because it's your story. Does that make sense? Don't let anybody squash your story because it's yours. You, in fact, in your worship guide, if you, and if you don't have a worship guide, I want you to get one. And I got I got in trouble from Lorna because I wrote too much and it caused an extra piece of paper to be in here. So y'all need to give a lot this week to pay for that extra piece of paper. No, but what's in there, I'm asking you to write your story down. If you're a Christ follower, I'm asking you to write your story down. Gave you a little template, a biblical template. Gave you even a little example of it because it's your story. And you should know the reason for the hope that lives inside of you. You should. You should be able to articulate it. And I'm not saying you are to gotta write with some eloquent kind of words. I'm not saying that, but it's your story and you should write it down. So we looked at the how, we looked at the, at the what. Let's look at the where. The where is the method. 
He says, you will, verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Yehuda and Shomron and indeed to the ends of the earth. And he, so he tells his people in this moment specifically where to go. Where are they? They're, they're right at Jerusalem. He says there. And then he says, I want you to go from there out here to Judea, into the Judean wilderness ultimately, but, and then into Samaria. And then I want you to go uh, to the rest of the world. But he says, go here and here and here like the, like the ripples when you throw a rock in the, or a pebble in the water, that it, they're concentric circles and you start in the bullseye. Where's the bullseye? In their case, it's in Jerusalem. So a believer is, where's our bullseye? Our bullseye is our home. You need to be witnessing in your house where you live first and then progressively out from there. Subdivision. Why do you think in our life groups we want you to invite people, truthfully invite people that, that aren't believers in your neighborhood to come over and have a hot dog? It's a whole lot more likely that somebody comes over to have a hot dog or a hamburger at your house during a life group then they're going to come in the doors of a church. And I'm not saying coerce people. Do life with people. Let them know you're not some weirdo, right? You're, you're, you're a sinner. You're a saved sinner. They may be a lost sinner, but we're on equal footing. So it's at home first, our subdivision, wherever out from there. But move out, we do. Outward and onward, we do. Listen to this statement. The gospel has not reached its final destination if somebody in your family, in your workplace, in your school, or in your community has not heard about Jesus Christ, then it ain't over yet. And if there's breath in their lungs, it ain't over yet. So scene two, we get our marching orders, the how, the what, and the, and the where. Scene three is this, I want you to picture again this scene at the Mount of Olives, it's 500 plus Jesus freaks, these 500 plus people. And Jesus ascends, the Bible says taken up, he ascends before their very eyes. Verse nine, it says after saying this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now this is a real event, y'all. Like this legit happened. So think about what, like amazing, utterly amazing thing that must have been to see that you're standing there. He gives them their final charge, his final words. And then the most dramatic event takes place. He begins to slowly arise from the Judean hillside, almost like a cloud comes by and just kind of reaches down and, and, and lifts him up. Can you imagine standing there and seeing that happen? Like holy mackerel, like you're watching him rise up into the, into the heavens. Like what kind of a thing would that have been to actually witness that? Up and out of their sight, clearly they're spellbound at what they saw, the return of God's beloved son to the father. Well, why the drama? Like why, the, the, why do you reckon that it needed to play out that way? Well, it's six weeks on the other side of the resurrection and they've been seeing him all over the place and he's kind of been popping in and out of their sight. If you read the gospels, he's kind of been popping in and out of their sights. It was truly an, an, another confirmation that he 
He really was who he claimed to be. He really was God. And I think his, I think his people needed to see the transition because they had witnessed the fact that he had left the building, figuratively. He'd left the building. He'd, he'd gone up. He'd been with them, and he'd poured into them for three and a half years. And this six weeks, he'd teach, taught them all kind of stuff. And the scripture says all these things that he did and that he taught. But he now he'd physically, think about this, he'd physically left the earth and returned to his heavenly home. And that confirms for them that saw that happen that his work was now in their hands. His work was now in the hands of the people that he had been pouring into for three and a half years. Operating, those people operating in the power of the promised Holy Spirit that was not, had not come yet, was coming in a minute, but hadn't come yet. But he's confirming to them, all of my work that I've been teaching y'all about, is, as he's rising up, he's putting it in their hands to do. And I think he needed to, to enforce and dramatize that they didn't need to be standing around staring into space. They needed to get busy. They needed to get busy and they needed to pray and they needed to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Get ready to witness to a world that is lost and reeling in desperate need. That world that this was, go, that this was in in, the, in Acts chapter 1, you know, around 33-ish A.D., reeling in despair and desperate need. You think the world today is reeling in despair and in desperate need? Raise your hand if you think that's the world we live in. It absolutely is. So stop staring off into space and wondering what to do. Get busy. We got a mission, y'all. We got a mission. And so this scene three, Jesus has taken up. Last scene, scene four, let me give you this. It's verses 10 and 11. The angels prophesy his return. The Bible says as they were staring into the sky after him, suddenly they saw two men dressed in white standing next to him. The men said, you Galileans, which is code for rednecks, you rednecks. It's funny the way this translation kind of puts it. It really is. That's the way they looked at Galileans, y'all. Like, remember what they said, Jesus from Galilee? Him? From Buena Vista? No, no, that's, that's what, it, if you're from Buena Vista, I, I'm sorry. But he says, you Galileans, why are you standing, staring into space? This Yeshua, this Jesus who's been taken away from you into heaven, he will come back to you, the Bible says, in just the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the Lord's got two angels, two men there at the Mount of Olives. And these two are dressed in white, which is always kind of a biblical uh, portrayal in the color of angels' clothing. And so these two dudes say, I think, three significant things with one, with one very significant thing laying over the top of the three. Maybe it's one and then one A, B, and C or something. But the, the thing laying over the top is he's coming back. I said that a little while ago. You can just take it to the bank that he's coming back. And so this first thing is this same Jesus is going to actually return just the same way that he left. He's not returning in some other strange way, in some other different way where you're not going to recognize him and he's going to be hidden and you got to have the secret handshake or the secret knock on the door. It's not, he's not going to be hidden. It's not what Scripture says. It says he's going to return in the clouds of heaven. And 
Revelation chapter 1 says every eye is going to see him. Every eye is going to see him. You're not going to have to have some secret thing. Every eye is going to see him, number one. Number two, this same Jesus is the one who's coming back. He's not going to be different. He's not going to be different in person or character or attitude. He's going to be the same, the same Lord, the same Savior, the same one who came to earth 2,000 years ago to save men and women, the same one who loves and cares for those who, who follow him, the same one who healed your deepest, darkest, nastiest wounds, the same one, the same one who broke whatever chains of addiction you may have had, the same one who separated your guilt and your shame and your sin as far as the east is from the west. It don't get no further than that, right? The same one. The same one that you trusted in as an 11-year-old or as an 18-year-old or as a 63-year-old two weeks ago. The same Jesus that you trusted in is the one that's coming back. Number two and number three is this. The same Jesus who will return is the one that those 500-plus people saw rising up into the clouds. The Jesus in heaven is the same Jesus that the disciples knew, the one that came to earth, the one that hung out with them, the one that sat around the fire with them, the one who was their advocate. The same one that stands in the gap between a holy God and a sinful jerk like me. It's the, he's the same one. So when he returns, he's gonna be coming back to receive all the believers to himself. And he's going to be coming back and receive all the believers to himself so that we can be where he is. So that we can be in the Father's house. Look at John 14. We're going to end with this. John 14, verse 2. It's Jesus' words. In my Father's house are many places to live. If there weren't, I would have told you. Because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. You know he's preparing a place for y'all. He's preparing a place for me. I want a king-size bed. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. But he says, since I'm going and I'm preparing a place for you, I will return to take you with me. That is a promise. Like, there's no better promise. I will return to take you with me so that where I am, you may also be. Y'all, if you're a Christ follower, you got your orders. It doesn't take a PhD to understand the orders. Go be my witness. That's about the end of it. Go be my witness. In your world, you don't have to go out on the streets. I'd love it if you did, but you don't have to go on the streets. And it sure ain't the first place that you go. You talk in your family. 90% of my family's lost and going to hell. You think I need to keep talking to my family? I do, I do. So, so you, we got our orders, y'all. I mean, we do, we got our marching orders. If you're a Christ follower, and if you're a Christ follower, you've been equipped. Think about how awesome that is. You've and I have been equipped to fulfill the greatest task that mankind has ever had. I don't care if you're 12, or 72, the same, and I don't care if you lived in 
112 AD or 2021, the same Holy Spirit indwells you that indwells me. You are just as equipped as I am. And so we've got the task, y'all. We've got, we've got the task. And you know what? That if you're a Christ follower, if you're not, okay, I'm going to say not yet. But if you're not, you can be. And it doesn't take 12 PhDs for that either. It is just such a simple gospel. It's repent, confess, and believe. Turn away from the sin and turn towards the Lord. Confess with your mouth that he is the Lord, that your sin, if God is just, the sin's got to be paid for. And I'm telling you, God's just. Who would he be if he wasn't just? So the sin's got to be paid for. But the greatest deal in the whole world is he took care of it and paid for it himself. And I don't have to. That's the gospel. It's free to, to, to me. Turn away from the sin, turn towards him. Confess with your mouth that, the, that he is the Savior and that your sin has been taken care of and believe in your heart that he was raised. That's it. That's it. And say, Lord, save me right now. And he will. He will. Y'all pray with me if you close your eyes. And if you've never said yes to that offer, just listen to the words that I'm saying. See if they make sense to you. And don't let your head hit the pillow tonight without at least considering the offer. Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge that I was born headed for hell. And you looked down and said, hey, I got this. So Lord, I do repent of my sin. I turn away from it best I can. And I turn towards you. And I'm way not perfect. And I get that I'm not perfect. Matter of fact, that's why I'm turning away from the sin and turning towards you. And Lord, I, I do confess and I believe that you died on that cross and you took care of it for me. And I believe that you walked out of that grave alive, seal that deal. Lord, save me. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna leave you with this. If you said that, if you thought that, if you believe that, we've got people back in that corner that would love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you out here. I'd love to talk to you on the phone, 706-681-2732. I would love to talk to you on the phone. I'd love to talk to you in person, but talk to somebody. Talk to somebody, because that's a big deal. It is at Marianne, is that a big deal? It's a big deal. Turn it over to you, bro. <laughs>